0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe, your escape to reality.
2: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is August 1st, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Welcome to August, everybody. Welcome. Yay. August
1: it's 1st. A good month. Goodbye, it's July. Good month. It's my second favorite month. Really? August? I don't know. Well. It's just so hot and humid. I'm not an August fan. That's where my garden's but, at its most productive. Ooh. See that? See? All right. Okay. Fair enough. You know, today marks an interesting anniversary, August 4th, 1921. Can you guys guess what was sent for the first time? On August fourth, nineteen twenty-one,
3: Uh television transmission. No, no, it was like in the forties.
2: Ham radio. Nope. Uh, the transatlantic line guess, for
1: not the telegraph. The telegraph. Nope. The first spam email. Oh, that's the closest sentence, uh, of of all of these, actually, Bob, because cool. on August fourth, nineteen twenty-one, the first fax was sent. Oh, I was going to awesome. say that. <laughs> Can you believe <laughs> that? Yeah. What's a, awesome. what's a fax? <laughs> yeah, a maybe, t- yeah, a lot of people <laughs> in our audience probably don't know what a fax is, but, uh, for a while, that was the best way to receive spam, uh, was through the fax. And yeah, um, technically it was a, I think they called it a balinograph, or at least balinograph was the name of the invention, uh, which transmitted the facsimile invented by Edward Bellin. So it was a written message sent from the managing editor of the New York Times, which was scanned and sent by radio from Annapolis, Maryland. Scanned how? Got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the, with the- Trying to imagine 1921 technology. I mean, what- yeah, I mean, it's not like they didn't have a, a scanner, but I guess, okay, they had, it was a light beam reflected onto a photo cell that converted the variations in the received intensity to electrical signals, which were then forwarded by radio or telephone wires. Cool.
4: Ah, oh, that sounds pretty modern. Wow.
1: Using a rotating cylinder, I should
3: say. Ah, uh, well, there you go. There's the antiquity for you. Was there a
1: squirrel rotating the cylinder? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, at the time that that was sent. I guess that was the first transatlantic fax uh, because the same method was already in use within Europe for sending photographs apparently. Isn't that crazy? That's Faxes crazy. In wow. In the 20s. Mhm. Facsimiles. So why did it take so long? Why why did we not have faxing back then? Well, there was faxing. It was just it just wasn't something that everybody had in their home. It it became inexpensive in the 70s and 80s. I'm still alarmed when people ask me to fax something. It's bizarre. We still use a fax quite extensively at work.
2: Mm. Yeah. For like medical records and yeah, stuff? Yeah, you need to send yeah. documents around. Yeah. yeah,
3: accountants use fax machines all the time too.
2: All right, well, Evan, uh, tell us about this new study looking using superstition in order to make stock trades.
3: Yeah, this, uh, this is int- very interesting. A grad student from London's Royal College of Art has created a superstitions fund. Now, you've all heard of stock funds, right? equity funds, mutual funds. Those are sets of investments in various stocks on a stock market, and there are lots of different kinds of funds. They're different in the types of stocks that they carry, or the size of the companies they invest in, or the level of risk involved, conservative versus aggressive, and there are various blends of these styles. So there's lots of different ways for people to invest their money in funds. But the Superstition Fund was designed to manage sets of stocks to make trades depending on several superstitions that are prevalent in society. For example, the Superstition Fund will trade a certain way on Friday the 13th, or it will adjust its patterns on days in which there will be a full moon, and aspects of numerology have been incorporated into the trading equations. So the grad student's name is Xing Ta-chung, and he developed the autonomous superstition algorithm that is actually making these trades for the fund. It's a computer that controls the entire experiment, right? So there's no... He he created the program, the algorithms, and the computer is taken over from this point. Participants, investors, were asked to contribute a minimum of two pounds each, uh, or more, and the investment is tied up in the fund for 365 days, so it's going to be a year-long experiment. Uh, The fund is investing in the United Kingdom's FTSC-100 Index, also known as the FTSE, and there's about, uh, 4,800 pounds total in the fund, which is now closed. It's been running for the last two months or so. So we're already into it. And during that time, the program has been and will make trades purely based on superstitious beliefs. So it's
2: like every other trading algorithm. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, you, you, I, you kind of equate this to, you know, hanging up the, uh, stock report from the newspaper on the wall. Putting on a blindfold and throwing darts at the stocks you want to choose and, you know, coming up with that as your fund and then trying that out and testing it against some other funds that are out there and seeing what your results are. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's some, a lot of randomness to this that may yield some, you know, success. Well,
2: Evan, that exact experiment has been running for the last 20 years or so, since 1988, actually. What you just described, throwing darts at the uh, stock listings and comparing that to, experts you know hand picking stocks
3: right and there's little difference
2: it's I, I read a very long article about it actually before the show it's 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 of course it's complicated you know it, right. it, there's no easy answer um let me see if i could summarize it for you very quickly so the uh the dartboard method produced results that were similar in many ways to the expert picked stocks but it depends on how you ask the question 60 the pros uh, beat the dartboard 61% of the time but that means the dartboard beat the pros 39% of the time uh however if you compared the pros to the down the dow jones industrial average mm-hmm. they did 51% compared to 49% so they beat it by just, just yeah just just 2% very very slim it's like essentially random guessing Uh, However, the pros averaged uh, 10.8% versus 4.5% for the darts and 6.8% for the Dow Jones. So in terms of how much money they would have made, they actually did significantly better. Uh, So depending on how you look at it, it could seem as if the pros actually do better than average. However, that data has been analyzed by other economists and experts and said – Actually, they're not doing better than random guessing because there's a few effects in play here that can explain the difference. One is that people, because the, the, the picks that the pros were making were made public. And so there was a publication effect that people were following the pros, which bumps the stock. Uh, so if you, and if you factor that out of the equation, that eliminates a lot of their advantage. There also was, A little bump after the pros made their decision, but before they were published. So, you know, the, the suspicion is that, that that was being communicated to some people somehow and that, that they, that they were basing their trades on the, the stocks that the pros picked. Also, the pros do certain things which kind of game the system a little bit. One that I thought was interesting was that they tended to pick stocks that paid low dividends. So what that means is that. More of the profit of the company went into bumping the value of the stock rather than being paid to the stock paid owners out. as dividends. So that artificially made the stocks seem to do better. Hmm. But right. they were earning lower dividends on average than the Dartboard or the Dow Jones.
1: You know, that experiment is also like uh, one done just a couple of years ago by our friend Richard Wiseman. He yeah. gave 5,000 pounds to – or at least uh, stakes of 5,000 um, pounds. <laughs> right. Could have been fake. I don't know. To, yeah. one, one went to a professional stock analyst, one to an astrologer, and one to a five-year-old girl, and they had a year, and after a year, they found that the professional analyst picks went down 46 percent, the astrologers went down 6.2 percent. And the five-year-old girl came out ahead, with a growth of five point eight percent.
2: Yeah, I mean it's basically yeah, it's the same experiment, it's just random choices essentially versus pros. But this has been this is a larger data set that's been going on.
1: Yeah, it's just that this is cuter because this is that's, that's, that's cuter. cuter. <laughs> it's not a little it's girl. Involves a little yeah. girl. Yeah. Little girl. So the,
2: remember we um, we discussed this issue before that uh, the the stock market is is an efficient destroyer of information, and so when the market is behaving efficiently. In other words, no one's cheating, for example. Mm. Then, uh, you shouldn't be able to do better than just following, you know, the Dow Jones average, for example. You should do as well as the stock market's doing in general. Uh, if you're doing significantly better than that, you're probably just lucky. Again, assuming that you're not doing something like insider trading. Right? Because if you could consistently outperform, the market, then what does that mean? That means you're getting access to. You've got an edge. Yeah, you've got an edge somehow. Something that someone else doesn't. Whatever information you're using to get that edge, because everyone, if it's public, then everyone should have access to that information, and there should be enough people who know how to act on it that they essentially destroy the utility of that information as soon as it comes out. So that's what I mean by the market destroys information. So you, you need to be getting that information quicker or whatever. People always think that they have the magic insight into the market, but no one really has been able to demonstrate no. that they do. They just, they're just using the the successful past predictions to say, "Oh, look, whatever system I was using must be correct because my I previously was you know made good picks." But that's just like a, you know astrologers making lots of predictions, and then you, you think the the would are uh, the. The astrologer who made the good predictions is real. No, it's just that it's, you, know, you throw enough darts at the board, one's going to hit, and it doesn't predict who's going to do well in you know in the future. So uh, that's so why I, I kind of made the joke about you know. So it's no different than any stock you know algorithms because there is no magical algorithm that gets around an efficient market that destroys information. But
3: the idea itself of a superstitions fund is a very interesting idea, yeah. I thought, because it kind of shows people, well, as as the creator of the algorithm says, Chung says that the idea was conceived when he was researching superstitions and case studies about how these irrationalists come to affect the world we live in, right? He says that as a society, examples are often hidden, or we choose to ignore them because we consider ourselves very rational and scientific beings. But um, at the same time, was, he's raising questions about our irrationalities and, uh, and technology at the same time, and he chose the topic of finance to kind of express it uh, with this particular project. He says, we become more superstitious in times of instability, searching for patterns to give us the illusion of control. So with both economic and political instabilities, we're becoming more superstitious, and I think he's hit that right on the head.
2: Yeah. All right, well, Bob, tell us about
4: the uh, Curiosity. Well, guys, August fifth, ten thirty-one p.m. Pacific time is do-or-die time. The oh. the Mars Science Lab, otherwise known as the Curiosity rover, will either burn up in the atmosphere, land safely oh. on Mars, or crash spectacularly on the surface, creating what I'm sure will be called Curiosity Crater. <laughs> <laughs> This is, it's really an incredible mission on so many fronts. It's NASA's biggest, most ambitious and expensive mission yet. It costs 2.5 billion American dollars. Whoa. And, and that's one billion over budget, which surprised the hell out of me. I mean, that's, that's a hell of a cost overrun, isn't it? I mean, I mean, don't people usually lose their jobs when they, when they miscalculate that much? This is such an ambitious project, though, often requires You know, ambitious technology to carry it out, and this this mission is no different. You know, as cool as what Curiosity can do on Mars, and that includes things like finding the precursors of life, uh, you know, I'm maybe most excited about the landing itself. Uh, You know, NASA describes it as seven minutes of terror. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, but but I but I call it seven minutes of cool tech. Yeah, but your job isn't on the line. Tell it tell, describe yeah. the landing, Bob. What's it going to look like? I'll get to that, man. I got to build up to that. I am like, not just going to jump right in. Yeah, Bob's got to waste a lot of time first. Jay. Okay. Okay. That's an interesting. Yeah. Bit. <laughs> All right, so I think it's important to say, well, why do we even need new technology? I mean, haven't we done this stuff over and over and over? And well, yes and no. You know, when this capsule hits the atmosphere on August fifth, it's going to be traveling at thirteen thousand miles per hour. And to put that into perspective, uh Evan, I thought you might like this. That's that's five point eight octillion yoctometers meters per second. So that's pretty fast <laughs> oh, pretty it. fast. You're exactly right. right. Loving that. that- so what? Uh- Solidified it in my head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Octometers. <laughs> so, uh, so to land though, this rover's going to need to be going about 1.5 miles per hour. So you got to go from 13,000 miles an hour to 1.5. So how's you that going to s- slow down? You got to slow this thing down. So, well, the next thing I thought, Jay, was, well, how did other missions do this? I mean, we've done stuff like this before. I mean, look at Viking and Mars. Uh Phoenix landers they they use retro rockets, you know, to slowly lower yeah. the payload all the way to the surface. You're I love like, retro rockets. Don't I you? know, aren't they aren't they cool? Kind of like, it's it's that cl- old fashioned. It's got that classic image from the 50s of a rocket landing on, a, on another planet. And uh the thing is we can't do it. We can't we can't do it for the, for this mission. It's Curiosity is just too damn big and heavy. It's 2000 pounds a ton. It's like a car. This retro rockets would would not are not for this job because they would be so powerful, they would kick up they would take up so much dirt and rock and debris that it would actually damage the uh the rover so it's it's not a good idea they they could not even they couldn't even think about doing that plus also with uh these retro rockets would make little craters themselves on Mars and curiosity would have to uh you know kind of avoid them as it was rolling around trying to get to the areas it wanted to examine and uh and then the other another minor point is that you you'd have this you know if you have a retro rocket the curiosity rover would be on this exit ramp thing and it would have to go down and to exit the ramp. And that's kind of, you know, that could be a little tricky too. If you, I mean, if you, if that thing tips over, it's probably in bad shape. So, uh, some of you guys might be thinking, well, what about airbags, right? Didn't, didn't the Pathfinder and the Spirit and Spirit and Opportunity, they used airbags and, uh, those airbags solved all the problems that I just mentioned. But again, curiosity is just, just too damn big. If you had to make an airbag that could cushion curiosity, it would be so heavy and so expensive, and you know how expensive it is to launch stuff off the Earth. And you, even with a good airbag, though, you'd have to slow it down so much that you may as well just, you know, just cut it out of the loop. And you wouldn't even need the airbag because it would be going so slow that you wouldn't even need it. So here, so so now we have the sky crane, and this is the big, cool new b- bit of technology. This, it's kind of like a jetpack-like flying platform, and it's 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 a critical technology. Huh. It's really critical that, the, and this will be. One of the key components for that last bit of deceleration that's required to get Curiosity on the ground, but there's lots of critical components. Obviously, there's a, it's a, you know it's a multi-stage deceleration process, and if any one of the, these components fails, there's going to be a new crater on Mars on, on August fifth. Yeah. So here's how we hope it's going to go.
5: That's one hell of a filled up, Bob. Get to yeah. it, bitch. All
4: right, all right. Um, so the the capsule the capsule enters the atmosphere at thirteen thousand miles an hour, and uh, the Martian atmosphere is a big pain in the ass.
5: How it's fast about- is that in kilometers? <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's about it's about a hundred times thinner than Earth's atmosphere, but it's you know it's not thin enough to ignore, and it's not thick enough to slow the capsule like we would like we could do it on Earth. So you so we need this heat, this awesome heat shield, and it's this heat, this heat shield is going to take a, the brunt of the abuse that this thin atmosphere is going to dish out, and it's going to slow things down to a thousand miles an hour. So from thirteen thousand to a thousand miles an hour, but of course you you've got to pay the price for all the friction, right? You, this thing is going to be glowing at like thirty eight hundred degrees. Or mm-hmm. possibly 1,600 degrees, depending on what damn website you're reading. <laughs> Next up is the biggest – this is called cool, the, the biggest and strongest supersonic parachute that's ever been used on another planet. It's, it's a 60-foot wide parachute with 160 cables coming down supporting it. And it's got, this thing has got to deal with th- about 32 tons of force when it starts slowing down the, the capsule. And when the parachute's job is done, it's going to be going 200, 200 miles an hour. So we've gone from thirteen thousand to a thousand to two hundred. So now so now it's time for the sky crane. The sky crane's got the Curiosity Rover in its belly. And what's gonna happen is that it's the um the sky crane's gonna detach from the parachute and the first thing it's gonna do, it's gonna fire its rockets, obviously, but then it's gotta it's gotta skitter to the left or the right because it doesn't want to hit the parachute, right? Because that parachute's still right above it, and it's on a collision course. So it's got to get out of the way. So it gets huh. it gets out of the way, and then what it does, it's it, it's pretty much just eating up the last little bit of downward velocity. And at about sixty feet above the ground, it's going to lower the rover about twenty feet down below it okay and then once it's fully extended then the uh, the sky crane is going to start descending to the good spot on the ground that it, that it's detected and then once it has confirmation that the curiosity's wheels have touched down then the cables are going to explosively detach and the sky crane of course has you can't stay there it's got to it's going to fly away to a safe distance and it's going to pretty much just crash on the ground and that's pretty much the end of the story. But uh I, I kind of wish, though, when I was reading this, I wish it could land safely somewhere so that, you know, because I'd love to see it when I visit Mars someday. It would be cool to walk over to that sky crane and say, hey, yeah, there's a sky crane I was talking about it 50 years <laughs> ago. <Mars> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, right. to, you're always the yeah, optimist. Right. To,
5: to understand this better, the sky crane is actually going to stop... In midair and lower lower the the payload onto the ground at 1.5. Um,
4: miles but an hour. It, it won't be a full stop. I mean, it'll be, it'll be going up under two miles an hour when it when it when it touches when it you know when it lowers and the, the rover and the rover hits the ground. So it's going to close hit, enough. But that, that, that's close enough. That's damn damn slow. Yeah. Uh, but man, I just I can't wait. I really hope they don't screw it up because imagine this is such a complicated process. I mean, it's if it's if one little component fails, then game over. You know, oh, back geez. to the drawing yeah. board. And and it's uh. You think the Mars uh, weather will cooperate? I mean, well, that's have a dust storm. Actu- you're something. absolutely right. That actually is something that they're afraid of because who knows? That's unpredictable. Who, you know, you could have some huge gust of wind on Mars, and that could that could you know that could wreak havoc if it's if it's a worst case scenario. Absolutely. So they, you got to cross <laughs> your fingers a little bit on that. Even if we do everything perfectly, you know, Mother Nature is not going to uh not going to necessarily cooperate. So cross yeah. your fingers, even though that won't help.
2: Well, if all goes well, maybe we'll talk next week about a little more about what the curiosity is going to do itself. Yeah, okay. Uh, Okay, let's move on. I want to talk briefly about a vocal minority of people who oppose a public health measure that has been shown to be safe and effective, and they oppose it largely with false controversy, pseudoscience, and distortion of the evidence. You may be thinking that I'm talking about the anti-vaccine movement, and I am. Yep. But – there's, because they they do share those qualities, but there's actually an anti-fluoridation movement that is very similar. In a How's
1: lot of that ways. still happening? I yeah. know, right? What is going on? It's been on around with that? forever. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, because, you know, it's the violation of our precious bodily fluids. It gets people upset. <laughs> I had never even heard <laughs> of
1: it right. until I saw that movie. and Dr. Like, Strange Love? Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a thing? Seriously? It was a, thing. a real scare. It must have been a thing in, in the 60s, you know. After
5: everything we've experienced throughout the years, I mean, you, you can't even question, like, how strange things are anymore. Like, yeah. yeah. Yep. They deny everything.
1: It's just that seeing it in the context of a comedy, you know, it, it was like a, it was a Poe. I, I couldn't tell if it was uh serious or not. I, it really could have been made up, you know.
2: That is uh at the fringe end of the anti-fluoridation. It's the ones who think that it's a government conspiracy adding fluoride to the waters to, to make mindless slaves of us all. But the mainstream, if you will, anti-fluoridation activists just think that uh, their, their main point is that it's a violation of our freedom to impose essentially medication on the public at large without their consent. Um, the reason we're talking about this week is because there has been a – Press release sent out by the NYS coalition opposed to fluoridation. And the press release is discussing the results of a study that was, condu- that was conducted at Harvard. The headline of the press release is Harvard Study Finds Fluoride Lowers IQ, published in Federal Government's Journal.
1: Mm. <gasps> that can't be da, good. Da, da, da.
2: Yeah, so they talk about, uh, again, yeah, it's, then it's just a, it's a propaganda piece against, you know, fluoridation, talking about the fact that there's substan- quote-unquote substantial evidence of developmental neurotoxicity. And Bieber, the guy who is uh, the president of the organization, says it's senseless Justin. to keep subjecting our children to this ongoing fluoridation experiment to satisfy the political agenda of special interest groups. W- what, what what special <laughs>
5: interest groups? <laughs> yeah, who is, who are special, who is specifically and specially <laughs> interested big fluoride. in this? Big, <laughs> big, big <fluoride>. Dental? <laughs> <laughs> big, big dental
2: <laughs> the dentist sh- should be against fluoridation cuz it reduces their it's business true
3: big sugar mm big sugar mm. yeah i like that
2: here here's the the nub of it uh for a little bit of background uh fluoride's been added to um some municipal or or local community water supplies since around 1950 um it was recognized in the 1940s that fluoride played a role in the health of bones and teeth. And then there was the Grand Rapids study where they added fluoride to one community's water supply and not the other. And then after a few years, study ran for several years. They start the, the community getting the fluoride had a 50% decrease, decrease in tooth decay in cavities. Since then, fluoride has been added to, to uh, water in many communities in the U.S. The UK and Australia, not so much in the rest of Europe. The, so we have now we have about 50 years of research showing that adding fluoride is safe and that and that it significantly reduces tooth decay, even above and beyond brushing, above and beyond getting fluoride in toothpaste. It's very very cost effective. It saves estimated 3.8 billion dollars in the in the US. The Harvard study was actually not a study and was not looking at water fluoridation. Uh, it was a re- it was a review of previous research. And it was looking at the, the potential for toxicity from fluoride. Um, but the studies that they looked at, mostly, most of these studies were done in China. One was done in Iran. They were looking at exposure to fluoride from sources other than deliberate fluoridation of the water supply.
5: Like if somebody's trying to poison someone with fluoride?
2: No, no, no. First of all, fluoride is naturally occurring in water to various degrees. Water treatment plants do is they adjust the level of the fluoride. If it's too high, they bring it down. If it's too low, they bring it up. The optimal dose is about between 0.5 and one part per million, or 0.5 and one milligram per liter. Uh, the, at at that level, there is almost no risk uh, from the fluoride, and it does significantly reduce tooth decay. However, in uh, the EPA has set a limit of four parts per million for fluoride. So if, if there's naturally occurring fluoride in the water that's above that level, then you know you would actually remove it to get it below below safety limit. Now so in China there are communities that have natural naturally high levels of fluoride in the water, but also uh, fluoride could be an industrial contaminant. Two of the studies actually were looking at uh, exposure to fluoride from burning coal. So this was inhaled. As a contaminant of coal burning. And the levels. So here's the. Now the key is. That what the researchers did. Was they they compared. They looked at studies that compared. Different levels of exposure to fluoride. The high exposure group. Had typically between 5 and 10 parts per million of fluoride. Although again. Some had much higher. But that was sort of the. Where where most of the studies fell. And the low fluoride exposure group. Had between 0.5 and 1 parts per million, and they showed that the children who were in the high fluoride group had on average – well, the studies have showed a lot of variation in terms of how much of a drop in IQ they had, but it was about 0.45 standard deviations or like seven IQ points. So here's the thing. The low fluoride group, the group that had the higher IQ uh, in these studies, is had the same exposure as the recommendations for fluoridation in the public water supply. The people that, who had the children that had the lower IQ had levels of exposure that were higher than the EPA limits for safe levels of fluoride. And yet this review was used by the anti-fluoridationists uh, to argue that fluoride is dangerous. So it actually showed the opposite of what they're claiming. They just distorted it, cherry-picked Statements from the study didn't really explain what it was. It wasn't even a study of deliberate fluoridation of water supplies. Um, just to say, look, fluoride's a toxin. You should be scared. Yeah, everything is a friggin' toxin. Everything's a toxin at a high enough dose. It's all about the dose, at the doses that we're adding to water. These studies actually showed was, was safe. That was the group that did better.
5: So, so it goes to show you it doesn't matter even what the, what the research says. They could. They just put out a press release and say what they want, and, it, and the yeah. actual research results are meaningless. Exactly. I suspect
2: that half the time they don't even read past the headlines. Ooh, look, a scary headline. Let's use that in a press release. Now, even worse was that because they sent this out as a press release, I know we've discussed this many times before, that a lot of online news outlets were reprinting it under their news tab as news. Sometimes with the disclaimer saying that this is you know this has not been subjected to editorial review, sometimes without, but it creates the the false impression, especially for the unwary, that this is like an actual science news item, and that 's how it came to my attention. Numerous people sent this to me as a news item because they somebody was posting it on Facebook, you know it was being propagated through the social media
5: yeah i can 't blame local governments when they read things like this and they get scared and they don't understand. I mean they don't know the research, they don't understand the history, they don't understand why people would lie about it and everything. So sure, and people are typically fall prey to this stuff from things like this and that's why blogging is is useful and important. It's also important for people to go to these Meetings, the local government meetings and educate the people that are there and don't let crazy stuff like this pass. That's something that you can do with a few hours during a weeknight at the right meeting at the right time and make a difference in your local government.
2: Yeah, it's, it's one is, it, it is a situation where information is actually helpful. It's just spreading the correct information. Well, uh, let's move on. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about the bat winged monkey bird.
1: Yeah. You heard right. The bat winged monkey bird.
5: It exists. <laughs> make-
1: I want one. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a noted phenomenon. Uh, we have some eyewitness accounts. Well, we have three eyewitness accounts. They're, um, well, they're all from the same person. Th- there are three individual accounts and they were all separate <laughs> incidents. Uh, two did occur while she was very young, four years old.
2: Well, four and eleven. Four and eleven. Four. Yeah,
1: it's 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 credible. Okay, so there's a he, um, a zoologist, a cryptozoologist. He's both, Dr. Carl Schuker. He has a blog, and he got in touch with a woman who claimed to have seen a bat-winged monkey bird in England. Uh, she's from Kent, and she described seeing this thing three different times. Uh, the first time, she was four years old and traveling back from her auntie's house in London, she says, um, driving up to Kent, going through the countryside. And
4: she was watching The Wizard of Oz. Is that it?
1: Possibly. Well, no. This was 1969. When was Wizard of Oz? 39. 39. Tough to say. Four years <laughs> old. Who knows? But I can tell you that she says that her dad had been driving for a half an hour and that it was dusk. She said she looked out the back window of the car, looked into the trees, and she saw a monster with bat wings that it unfolded and stretched out before folding back up again. Red eyes and a kind of monster monkey face with a parrot's beak. And it was about three feet in height. She's now she's re- remembering this from That's 4 a years lot old. of animals all four years old. 4 years old. Yes. Uh so that was the first incident. I I saw
5: I saw a ton of monsters <laughs> when I was 4 years
1: old. A ton. Yeah, and did you see them again? Yeah, all right. So this is like where that. it gets <laughs> Okay. Did you see them again? So yeah, when she was 11, again in the car on the way home from Hastings, she saw it again. Out the back window of the car. Uh, she says that that was late at night. And then the third time was just last year she saw it. She says it was 4.30 in the morning. I was awoken by the same horrible screeching sound. It made a screeching sound, by the way. Thinking someone was being murdered in the street, I jumped out of bed and ran, ran to the window, catching the tail end of it as it flew past. I knew immediately what it was. The same horrible monster thing I'd seen all those years ago. The bat winged oh. monkey bird was back. <laughs>
2: It's awesome. Yeah, so she had a four-year-old fantasy of this batwing monkey bird, maybe provoked by a memory. Who even knows? So then she had this image of the batwing monkey bird in her brain. So on other occasions, when she saw some fleeting tale of something, she happily filled in the details with her pre-created fantasy. Right. I mean,
1: okay. So for starters, you don't remember things from when you're four. You remember memories of memories of memories of things when you're four, and pretty much they're all wrong. Everything you remember from when you were four years old is wrong. It didn't happen. Even Um, if it feels completely
5: right, right? Even if you think it feels like it's a real memory.
1: No matter how real it seems, it's wrong, especially if the memory involves a batwink monkey bird. Okay, so that's number one. Number two... Both of the sightings from when she was little, she says she was traveling in a car at night. Uh, the first one, when she was four, she says it was twilight. Uh, the second time, when she was 11, she says late one night. I don't know about you guys, but when I was a little kid, I used to fall asleep in the car all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's relaxing. You know, you're on a long drive. A Both of those were, yep. you know, long drives. So yeah, of course, you know, there's a chance that she was awake though, you know, especially when she was four, glancing out the window at trees flying past in the car. Of course, a four-year-old's going to fill in blanks and have all sorts of interesting imaginative fantasies. But the chance that she was actually dreaming increases greatly once you realize that it was at night. It was in the car. She was very young. And then the, the last time as a, an adult, when she sees it, 4.30 in the morning, she wakes up and sees this thing. I mean, that sounds exactly like a hypnagogic, uh, hallucination. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's not out of the question, but it is kind of fun to imagine that maybe, maybe there is some ultimate uh, argument ender of the bird versus monkey debate. <laughs> the bat-winged monkey bird uh is here to to join all our factions together in one terrifying nightmare visage.
3: I well, did a report on the Mongolian deathworm, so I
1: don't know. Mongolian well, yeah, that's <laughs> the Mongolian deathworms are really interesting, <laughs> little-known cryptid. So, yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah, I like
2: the Alaskan bullworm uh, bullworm better.
1: The Alaskan I, that's new to me.
2: Yeah. Deadlier? It's another Spongebob reference.
1: Anyway. Um. (laughs) You know what? what? (laughs) I'm sorry I can't keep up with your (laughs) highbrow references. Uh, Evan.
2: Evan. Yep. who's that noisy?
3: Yep. Yeah, let's get right to it.
4: Do
3: you know who that was? No idea. Wink Martindale. Dr. Professor Sigmund Freud. Oh. The only known recording of his voice. Oh, wow, shit. Wow, cool. Which was uh, recently discovered and uh, made available. He was 81 years old and suffering from jaw cancer when he made that oh, ouch. Uh, recording. And he, So he was he was close to the end there. And they said every word was agony to speak for him at that point of his life. So,
2: All right, so who did get that first?
3: Uh, David Kellogg emailed us with the correct answer first. Sigmund Freud. Well done, David. Good job. Good job, man.
2: And this week.
3: Okay, here we go. Who's that noisy?
0: All
3: right, clearly that's an instrument being played. Yes, yes, yes. However, we need to know exactly what instrument.
5: That's me playing my didgeridoo for the first time.
3: Jay, we don't need to know about your personal life. So go ahead, send us your answer. Do a little research, figure it out. I think someone will get it. Info at skepticsguide.org or post on our forums, please, at sguforums.com. Good luck to everyone.
2: All right. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Brian Wecht. Brian, welcome to The Skeptics Guide. Thanks so much for having me. And Brian is a theoretical physicist, musician, and comedian. You have held positions at the Center for Theoretical Physics at MIT, the Institute for Advanced Study, and the University of Michigan. But you currently work at Harvard University studying string theory and supersymmetry. So you you buy that whole string theory business? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Kind of has to. (laughs) Well, you know,
0: I buy it as a a theoretical thing. I don't actually know. I think this is something that's kind of a generational thing, although some of my colleagues might yell at me for saying this. I think a lot of younger string theorists like myself are interested in string theory uh, as a tool for understanding quantum field theory and particle physics and not necessarily as uh as a tool for understanding the real world so uh ah. I'm kind of agnostic on whether or not we'll ever be ever be able to understand our you know four dimensional universe with the particles that we see from a direct string theoretic point of view but yeah, I totally buy string theory.
4: Well, Brian, okay. what's your take on the classic o- objection uh, to string theory that it's just, it's just not testable? I mean, I, I think so string, I think string theory is testable at extremely
0: high energies, although some people might even argue that. But it's certainly not testable in any realistic time frame, if ever in human history. So I think that, that is uh, dead on, unless we come up with some brilliant, amazing new way of testing it that we haven't thought of yet. But people have been trying very hard for, a long ass time, like you know, thirty years, to come up with a way of yeah. testing string theory, even indirectly, and so far, no dice.
4: I think uh, I think Michio Kaku would disagree. <laughs> <sighs> we can talk about Michio. Kaku. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to decide. <laughs> Brian, guys. can
5: you quickly just to explain what string theory is? If there's even a way to do that quickly.
0: Yeah, the 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 quick way of doing it is just to say that. uh So, string theory posits that you know we normally think of particles in in the universe as being these what I would call zero-dimensional things. They're just little perfect space-time points. They have no extent. But what string theory says is if you actually really got up on one of those things, if you could really, really look at it at very small distance scales, you wouldn't see a point, but you'd see a little vibrating one-dimensional object, a little line or a little loop of string. So essentially, that's the whole idea behind string theory, is that when you really look at a particle, you see a string.
5: But is it – like are you saying is the inherent question here, is it a wave, is it a particle, is it both? Like are you seeing it in – because it's moving it looks like that or it isn't actually physical in the way that we understand what physical means? I mean
0: the what I would say is that the string is actually the uh, – on small enough distance scales the correct way of seeing a thing. It has nothing to do whether it's moving or being a wave or anything like that. It actually is a little one-dimensional object.
4: Well, then – Would it necessarily then be um, indivisible, and what would it be? If it's one-dimensional, how could you really have a one-dimensional anything? I mean, what's it made of?
0: There's no way of answering this without being a little tautological, but it's
4: made of strings. So there's
0: some (laughs) sort of thing, this fundamental like (laughs) filament of energy, right? which is stringiness, and that is what a string theory string is. So when we talk about particles in string theory, they're just made of this stringy stuff, um, uh, and that, that's, that's as best an answer as I can give. You know, it's like this, the, the difference between a, a string theory string and like an ordinary wave on a string is that there's this fundamental stuff that has, well, I guess this is true for waves on strings as well, has some tension to it. So when you pull the string theory string, it's got a little bit of pushback to it. And that's what causes the different vibrational modes.
4: And those different vibrational modes determine what kind of particle or an object it is on the, on a macro scale. Well, that's sort of true.
0: So the, the thing with it, uh, string theory, though, is any vibrational modes we'd see, even the first vibrational mode of the string is, uh, is already pretty massive by, by our normal sort of, uh, point of view. So it's additional properties like stuff that comes from how we, you know, string theory has these extra dimensions, how exactly, uh, what we do with those extra dimensions that determines what the, the kinds of particles we get out are. But typically, the particles we talk about in the standard model are just like the lowest lying modes of the string.
2: And the appeal of this is that uh, it makes the math work out. I mean, it's just as a it's a con- conceptual framework for understanding the math of particle physics. Is that what you were saying?
0: Uh, no, I wouldn't say quite that. the The real appeal of string theory is that it Quantum gives us a way gravity. of talking about yeah, exactly, giving us a way of talking about gravity and particle physics using uh, essentially the same language. So the problem with, with gravity is if you try to talk about gravity using Feynman diagrams, which are the you know, language of uh, particle physics, whenever you do gravity calculations, you get essentially uh, infinite answers. So that's bad, right? There's no – some <laughs> infinities you can get rid of in particle physics. These are infinities you can't get rid of. And the thing about string theory is uh, it cuts off those infinities and makes them finite. So that's why people really take string theory sig- seriously, because doing that, it's hard to, just from what I'm saying to understand uh, if that's difficult or not. But it turns out to be an amazingly difficult problem and one of the most difficult problems in modern physics.
4: Is getting rid of the infinities, is that called renormalization? And does yeah. string theory fit into that category? The renormalization is a way of getting rid of infinities in
0: the standard model. So the problem with uh Quant, normal quantum gravity is that it is non-renormalizable. So what string theory does is essentially just makes the theory just objectively finite and not through the kind of renormalization procedure that you'd normally do in particle physics. Okay.
2: And is, is quantum loop gravity the alternate to string theory? Did I get that correct? Uh,
0: loop quantum gravity. Loop quantum is, gravity.
2: That's yeah. like an alternate. I learned that on the Big Bang Theory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: ha! Yeah, these, these are
0: like the, the two uh, opposing camps in, in quantum gravity. And, uh, you know, there really is a lot of, uh, butting heads between the two, uh, string theorists, um, take, you know, take their approach very seriously and kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too dismissive in a public forum, but, uh, regard the loop quantum gravity guys as maybe not being quite as rigorous. And I think the loop quantum gravity guys probably think the same thing about the string theorists.
2: Awesome. Can you be both?
0: Uh, I don't know anyone (laughs) that is, it's, you know, it's kind of like a West Side Story thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to cross that divide. Only one guy I know of has actually who's a string theorist has actually spent time sort of with the quantum gravity crowd trying to understand what they do. But you know, part he got of beat it, up. yeah, oh, he, he's dead now. <laughs> part of it is that you know you just have only so much time to to focus on your research and learning an entirely different research area is going to be quite a big hit. So I think the guy yeah. that even did this spent like several years with loop people, I don't remember the paper too well, but I, I remember his conclusions not being super positive about what he thought about loop quantum gravity. But it's a hard thing to, to go back and forth between the two, and no one really does
2: it. So when you pass a loop quantum gravity physicist in the hallway, do you like snap your fingers like the sharks in the <laughs> jets? You just pull out the knives. <laughs> <and start. laughs> you have a choreographed <laughs> dance that you do whenever you pass Awesome.
0: A it's pretty funny, actually, that uh, very few institutions have both string and loop groups. The only one I can think of offhand Ooh. is the Perimeter Institute in uh, in Canada. But hmm. uh, I'm sure there are others that I'm just forgetting right now. But it's pretty rare to, to have universities that have both string theorists and loop theorists. But I, I think the loop community is actually substantially smaller than the string community anyway.
5: So, Brian, is this a deal breaker? Like, if you met a loop girl, would you be like, oh, no, and you have to pass on that? Well, is she hot? (laughs) (laughs) She's hot. Yeah, she's damn hot. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) You could live with that.
3: Brian, what about M-theory, membrane theory? Do you need string theory in order to get to something like membrane theory, which I think is a very cool theory?
0: People mean a lot of different things by M-theory, but... Uh, what I typically mean when I say M-theory is this sort of super-theory that includes string theory in a bunch of different sort of corners of, if you like, parameter space. One particular corner of that is, uh, is an 11-dimensional theory without strings that has membranes. But these all seem to be sort of dual to each other. And when physicists say dual, they just mean they are sort of different ways of describing the same problem. And sometimes one description is easier. Sometimes the other one's easier. And you kind of go back and forth between them. But so far, there hasn't been a hell of a lot of understanding of really how to formulate this super theory called, called M theory. So that's been a long-standing goal of, uh, of string theorists. It was in the, I think, 95 that Witten posited this idea of M theory. But, uh, I hate to say there hasn't been a heck of a lot of progress in really coming up with what that big theory is. Ah, shit. It's too bad. Yeah, it's a bummer. And it's one of those things that people who don't like string theory harp on and, you know, might be huh. correct in doing so. They say, look, you guys have had a lot of time to develop this thing. And despite all your big promises, you don't have a lot to show for it. And on that particular question, although there certainly have been insights and has been progress, uh, it's not really where we wanted it to be.
2: So Brian, this has been a very fascinating warm-up, but the reason we actually brought you on the show this week is to give us some deeper insight into the alleged discovery of the Higgs boson. We've been talking yeah. about this on the show a lot. A couple episodes ago, we announced – we were actually a little bit late to it because we were pre-recording for for TAM, but right. uh they finally got to the Five Sigma with the Higgs, so – we definitely need to talk to a theoretical physicist to help us understand where, where they are with the research and what the implications of this are.
0: Well, uh, I mean, I think what we can say right now is that they found, they found something. And the big question is, we, we know it's a boson, but the question that is going to require a lot more data is, is it the Higgs boson that people have been talking about you know, for, whatever, 50 years now? What's a boson? A boson. <laughs> great question, Jay. Uh, a boson, there are two <laughs> kinds of particles in, uh, in the world, bosons and fermions. And roughly speaking, the way uh, – what distinguishes them is this intrinsic quantity called spin. But the way I think it's better to think about them is as things that obey the Pauli exclusion principle, which are fermions and things that don't. And what the Pauli exclusion principle is, is that says that uh, if if a particle obeys the Pauli exclusion principle, you can't have more than one of it sort of in the same quantum state. So for example, the the thing that everybody is familiar with here is when you're doing high school chemistry and you're filling out the periodic table, you say, okay, in the 1s orbital, I can put an electron up, and then I can't put another electron up, I can put another electron down, and then there's nowhere else to put electrons, so I have to bump over to the next orbital. And that's because electrons are fermions, and you can't have two electrons be in the 1s spin up or 1s spin down state. You need 1s spin one, 1s spin down, and then you got to bump over. So a boson is just something that you can uh, that doesn't obey that kind of exclusion, and you can dump as many bosons in the same state as you want, and then you get what's called a Bose-Einstein condensate at low temperatures.
5: Of course. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. Got that, Jay? You're good. Did, uh, I understood about ten percent of it, which makes me feel pretty. Let me good. say it: it's ten percent more than you knew before.
0: <laughs> yeah, another way, which is not actually, it's kind of misleading for the Higgs, but another way of saying it, uh, at least in our standard experience so far, is that fermions are matter. Like, things like electrons and muons and quarks and stuff like that. And all the bosons, except for the Higgs that we know, the bosons mediate forces. So an example of a boson is the photon, which is how things, uh, talk to each other through electromagnetism talk to each other.
5: Like force, force
0: gravity, carriers, Jay. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. Okay. But the Higgs is not a that. force carrier. It's a boson, but not a force carrier. And that's why I tried to, uh, do yeah. it with the Pauli exclusion principle. And I think that's something that, uh, is a crucial distinction to, to make.
5: All right, so why is this discovery significant? Why do we care? Because without the,
0: the – the standard model of particle physics seems to work like ridiculously well for uh explaining the, the universe that we see. So that describes all the particles, the electrons, the muons, the neutrinos, the quarks, all that stuff. And the problem with the standard model is unless you have this extra thing, which is the Higgs, we don't know how to give a mass to any of the elementary particles. So, something like the the quark masses, if you try to write down a quark mass without a higgs you j- ju- you just can't do it mm-hmm. so the Higgs is important because and this is not an understatement like without it, we really don't know how to give a mass to any of the elementary particles in the standard model, and this is why oh. theorists say it's like it's such an ironclad uh theoretical prediction that everyone really thought it was there because it it just had to be. There's
2: nothing else we know how to do. Is this the like the last major puzzle piece to the standard model?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a fair thing to say. I mean there there are other uh, there are other puzzles like dark matter. Uh, you, well, dark matter is not part of the standard. Ex-
4: model. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's not the be all yeah. end all. There's plenty of stuff that, that 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 the standard theory does not cover. Dark matter is is just one of it. One big puzzle that also needs resolution.
0: Absolutely, and, and gravity I mean, this as well is things... another, another piece. Isn't it? yeah and dark energy of course yeah. is a is a big one right why is the universe accelerating the expansion of the universe accelerating and in fact we think dark matter exists is one of the reasons that people are pretty hopeful that the the lhc the large hadron collider might see some other junk that we haven't seen yet so those of us who are more optimistic hope that the lhc is going to produce maybe whatever is responsible for dark matter that seems you know, you can argue about whether that's likely or not. Most people would probably say that's unlikely, but it is certainly a possibility that we're really hoping for.
2: And the process that the uh, the LHC is was go- was undergoing in the the experiments to find the Higgs, they basically were smashing stuff into each into each other, like p- particles, yeah, and and hoping that like one little squiggly trace that comes out of it is the Higgs. Is that the kind of data they're looking at?
0: Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. So they take two proton beams and they smash them into each other. And then the quarks and the protons, protons are made up of three quarks each. Those quarks interact because the protons are, uh, are, are moving so quickly and smash into each other so much that they overcome the, uh, electrical repulsion. And the quarks can see each other and then those quarks smash into each other at high energies and spew out a whole mess of particles. And then what the LHC tries to do, and this is, an, uh, how complicated this is just blows my mind. Uh, they try to infer what happened from the few DK products that, that they can see. So they measure, like, electrons and muons and photons and other, uh, other stuff that comes out of these collisions. But trying to get back to what process caused that is just a tremendously difficult task. But that's what these guys are doing yeah. not just every day but, like, basically every second of every day with their data. It's it's an incredible uh, accomplishment.
4: It sure is. And Steve, they're not going to actually see a squiggle that's the Higgs. I I think what they're going to see is, like Brian said, you're going to see the decay particles, the, the result of something that was probably produced by the Higgs, right? That's right. That's right. And in fact, the two big channels and by channels, I mean the way
0: the Higgs decayed, uh, that they noticed at the LHC were Higgs going to Z particles, which then decay into other stuff, and then the Higgs going into two photons. So the Higgs actually does other stuff much more often than that. But the problem is that is completely swamped mm. by all the other stuff that's going on in the standard model. You're not just producing Higgses; you're producing yeah. all sorts of other crap. You know, basically every particle you can think of, and the decay products that come out from those are masking all the stuff that any Higgses you're producing are decaying to. So what they needed to do at the LHC was basically collide things together enough that they could pick out these very, very rare Higgs decays uh, and
5: and see them. So why are we still kind of floating around the idea that they didn't 100% prove it? I mean, where are we now? Well, we're at a state where
0: we have a – the data is consistent with what we expect from the the usual standard model vanilla Higgs boson, but – what we need to still do is narrow down. So we're in some region of parameters and like one point in that whole parameter space is uh, is uh consistent with the standard model Higgs. But to say, hey, this is really the simplest thing we could possibly imagine, we have to keep whittling down all those possible parameters. And the only way to do that is for like the LHC to take more and more and more and more data. So people are kind of, they're, they're being a little bit, uh, hedgy with their statements because they're scientists and they want to be careful. But it is true that the the most correct thing you can we can say right now is that we found something which is consistent with what we expect from the Higgs boson. But it is far too early to say yeah yeah this is definitely what we expected. And of course, to people like me who want there to be other stuff beyond the standard model, I work on supersymmetry a lot, for example. What what I would love to see is the Higgs having some unexpected thing that, uh, that then we have to explain however we have to explain it. So that, that's why people are, are refusing to just say, yeah, we got the Higgs. Cause there's still a lot of work to do, uh, to figure out exactly where in the parameter space we are. You know, the pessimist in me, to, well, it's not really that pessimistic to say all of theoretical particle physics is correct, I guess. But, uh, the pes- pessimist in me thinks that we'll probably, uh, narrow it down to the standard model Higgs within I don't know, within a couple of years. But no one really knows the answer to that question.
2: So what you're saying is you hope that there, uh, that the data shows that the Higgs is not quite what the standard model predicts, that there's some other aspect to it that requires a, a deeper or another theory to explain, and therefore it'll be a little doorway into some other theoretical framework that will explain things outside of the standard model, like supersymmetry, for example.
0: That's right. Uh, or, or maybe not even explain w- what it would require is something beyond the standard model to explain why the Higgs is doing whatever weird thing it's yeah, doing. Yeah. So there, there was some like tiny little hint of this in the data they released uh, a few weeks ago in the decays where the Higgs goes to two photons. Uh, we saw more of those events than you'd expect from the standard model, but not in what I would call a statistically significant way in the sense that with more data, it could that anomaly could just sort of go away. So people are hoping that persists, but it's far from clear that that's going to stay around for even through the end of the year.
2: But scientists are supposed to hate mysteries. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, well, when your career relies on there being mysteries, you like them a little bit yeah,
4: more. I- <laughs> yeah. Hey, Brian, uh, it it would it would be really cool if they actually determined that uh, that the Higgs-like particle that that they're seeing is something outside of the standard model. That would be That would be fascinating, of course. But my question is, what would that mean for the standard model then? Would that mean that the standard model was incorrect because it didn't predict the correct type of Higgs?
0: No, it would mean that there's just other stuff out there beyond the standard model. So it looks like the standard model is correct. But what you'd need, for example, if – uh, the Higgs decays to to two photons more than you'd expect from the standard model. Well, you, there's maybe just some other particle. Maybe it's a supersymmetry thing. Maybe it's dark matter. Maybe it's something else that uh, that is causing those excess decays through its interactions uh, with the Higgs. So it doesn't mean that the standard model is wrong. It just means there's something else out there that we haven't accounted for yet. Oh, and if you and
4: if you plug that into the standard model, it would it would make sense then. It it would predict the what we what we did see.
0: That's that's the hope. I mean okay. at the moment we know, you know, it's optimistic to even be talking about uh yeah. this stuff. Yeah. But the idea would be that we just say, "Oh, actually there are more particles and this is how they interact yeah. and uh now we need to include them in this framework." But the standard model certainly doesn't require extra stuff a
2: priori. So like a lot of things in science, um it would be the standard model would be correct as far as it goes, just incomplete. Right. I, mean, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. get into this false dichotomy of a scientific theory is either right or wrong. It's either 100% correct or it's, or it's incorrect. But in fact, once this theory becomes fairly well established, it's the chances of it actually being overturned approach zero. Uh, you know, once it's, we have decades and mountains of data to support it. And the standard model has been ridiculously successful, as you said. But it could be incomplete. There could be other aspects to nature that it just are not accounted for within, within the model.
0: And in fact, we know for a fact, basically, it's incomplete because right. of dark matter, dark energy, all this stuff that we were talking about before. Yeah. So the question is, is it incomplete in a way we're going to have experimental access to yeah, or not? Right. And that's a, that's a big question. You know, right. uh, it, if the LHC sees exactly the standard model Higgs and then nothing else, like let's say it runs for 10 years and then it sees no sign of dark matter or no sign of anything else beyond the standard model, at some point, you have to ask the question, do you keep doing particle physics? Because you can't just build bigger and bigger machines forever, especially when you don't have a compelling reason to, to keep doing it. So, yeah, we know the standard model is incomplete. The question is, is it incomplete in a way that we're going to be able to study further?
2: Well, nature's not allowed to exist in a way that we can't study.
0: Yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with that. I mean, I, I think, uh, so far, nature has been inter, you know, every time we find something new, there's something interesting just on the horizon. Yeah. And we find something else awesome. And then, you know, I, I, although this is not really a, a scientific, uh, statement, it's a, it's, it's a, just a statement that science has continued to be interesting and particle physics has continued to be interesting. So, uh, I think it's reasonable to, uh, to, to hope that it continues to be interesting in yeah. the future.
2: Uh, Brian, you mentioned supersymmetry a number of times and that's part of what you study. Can you give us a brief description of what that is?
0: Yeah. So, uh remember we were talking about fermions and bosons. So what supersymmetry uh says is that for every one kind of particle. So for every fermion, you have a particle which is identical. It has the same same mass, same charge, same everything, except instead of a fermion, it's a boson. Or if you start with a boson instead of a boson, it's a fermion. So for example, if the standard model were supersymmetric, we have this fermion called the electron. We would also have another particle, which is a boson, which is just like the electron, only it has a different spin. So that's the idea behind supersymmetry. And the reason people like supersymmetry, even though, you know, clearly there's no, there's no particle that's a boson with the mass of the electron, because we would have seen it by now. But the reason people like supersymmetry is when you add in all these extra particles, you get these kinds of cancellations, which uh help explain, for example, why the Higgs mass is as light as it is. So supersymmetry gives you these massive cancellations when you're doing these Feynman diagram calculations that help explain why some things aren't as big as you might have naively expected. So that that's the basic idea behind supersymmetry. But the problem is that we just haven't seen it.
2: So to summarize, your whole career is based on stuff that we can't really test and may not be true. <laughs>
4: you know
2: it. <laughs> okay, just, just yeah. checking. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Brian, it's really been uh, fascinating having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks so much, guys. This was a blast. And, guys, don't forget to go to storycollider.org to uh, listen to and sometimes see Brian's podcast. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. Good night. It's time for Science or Fiction. Fiction.
2: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts—two real and one fictitious—and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. However, this week, Bob is taking over science or fiction.
5: What?
4: Absolutely, and I hate this job. <laughs> I uninformed. Come on, <laughs> it's it's not as easy as it sounds. Number one. Researchers claim evidence of an unknown species of hominid not from fossils, but from the DNA of hunter-gatherers from Cameroon and Tanzania. Number two, study finds that brain imaging can predict how intelligent you are. And number three, theory shows that ultra-high-energy cosmic rays are likely caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black holes. So, like I said, Rebecca, what do you got?
1: All right. DNA of hunter-gatherers from Cameroon and Tanzania. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how that would work. It doesn't come from fossils, but it comes from DNA. So where do they get the DNA? Well, I I guess,
4: well, I could, maybe I should be a little clear. It's modern day, modern day hunter-gatherers.
1: Oh, from the people, DNA of modern yeah. day hunter-gatherers. Oh, yeah. okay. People
4: that, are, the idea is that people
1: that are alive. I right now. see. Right now. Right now. Okay. now oh, well, that that's interesting. I like that. I like that idea. Uh, brain imaging can predict how intelligent you are. Don't like that idea. That triggers all of my skeptic alarm bells because what is intelligent? Uh, intelligence isn't some, it's not some quality that, that's clearly defined that can be seen on a, you know, on a brain scan or anything else. It's, I, I'm skeptical of that. And even if that one is true, even if there was a study that did find that out, I would be highly skeptical of the study. Third one, theory shows that ultra-high energy cosmic rays are likely caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black holes. Three or more. That's a lot of black holes colliding. But I suppose it could happen if they're supermassive, then they would have trouble avoiding each other. So... And once if they do that, then yeah, I can see them producing ultra high energy cosmic rays. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go with the intelligence one. I'm just I'm so skeptical of everything involving intelligence tests that I'm gonna have to I have to. I'm saying that one's the fake.
4: Thank you very much. Evan Bob, good one.
3: Good good choices this week. I'm I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Darn, I was hoping to get a read from you by that. All right, but it didn't work. Um, <laughs> oh, you bastard. I should have made you go first. <laughs> Next time. Uh, okay. Unknown species of hominid, not from fossils, but from the DNA of hunter gatherers. I don't see why that couldn't be, which brings us to the brain imaging. Yeah. Um, kind of in, I think, in agreement with Rebecca on this. What is the measure of intelligence, like you said, Rebecca? I think they might have been able to find this a long time ago. I'm not sure that this would even be something something re- recent, unless there's a new imaging procedure that's happening that uh, wasn't available a while ago. But uh, you'd think that this was something that uh, wouldn't be new news. It would be on the older side of things, maybe five, ten years ago. Um, last one: ultra high energy cosmic rays are likely caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black. Well, okay, Bob. So there's so many things in here that you know just scream bob novella that i don't see how this one could possibly be fiction because it's just too cool not to be fiction to be fiction but i'm trying to just give a little thought as to exactly why cosmic rays likely caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black holes why three or more hmm why not thank you evan jay oh (laughs) okay i agree with rebecca
4: Thank you, Evan. So, so which Jay. one?
5: What's your pick, Evan? <laughs> I, I say, brain like
3: imaging that. predicting intelligence is fiction.
5: All right. So, the first one about the the DNA from hunter gatherers—it's—it's it's interesting. Um, I, I really can't pick that one apart. Just it is what it is. So, I'm going to move on. Uh, the, the second one about the brain imaging can predict how intelligent someone is. Uh, there's a lot of things to be said about that. You know, what what is intelligence, and is there a telltale sign of it? In the brain, I don't think we're able to scan the brain that that well yet, to be able to, to notice those those things. I, I also think that this one, I could see where Bob twisted this one. Maybe they're saying that at some point they might be able to do it, but maybe not today. And the last one about the ultra high energy cosmic rays uh, being caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black holes—that's another one. Sure, yeah, I could see that. So I'm gonna go with the brain one. Not because Evan and Rebecca picked it, but because I I simply just don't think the technology is even close to being able to read that. GWR. GWR.
4: Thank you, Jay.
2: Steve. Well, the one about the DNA is very interesting. I'm trying to imagine how that could be done. I suspect that uh, those two populations have mutations that are unique to them. The thinking there being that they were reintroduced into those populations from another side branch of a hominin that's not around anymore. So I guess I could see how that would work. Uh, the one about the brain imaging and intelligence. So all that requires for this one to be true is that somebody did a study where they measured IQ – and they looked at some brain imaging and tried to correlate something on the brain imaging with the IQ score. I mean, I agree with, with Rebecca's, uh, skepticism about what the real implications of that data would be, but it's totally believable that somebody did that study. And then the third one is the one I have the problem with. The three black holes colliding. I know, you know, there's still a bit of a controversy, uh, a mystery about what the source of the highest energy gamma rays are. Or cosmic rays. And that black holes are thought to be a source of that. Maybe colliding black holes but three or more. I mean, why wouldn't two colliding black holes be enough? What would be special about us throwing a third one into the mix? And how often can that really occur? You know, where three, but I mean, colliding simultaneously? So I don't know. I just, I think that one is the one I think Bob probably tweaked. So I'm going to say the black holes is the fiction.
4: So you, uh, St- uh, Rebecca, Evan, and Jay think that the uh, the brain imaging is fiction, and Steve thinks that the uh, supermassive black hole, ultra high energy cosmic ray one is fiction. So that means I will start with number one, researchers claim evidence of an unknown species of hominid, not from fossils, but from the DNA of hunter gatherers from Cameroon and Tanzania. And that one is science. Right. And, uh, yeah, Steve, you pretty much, I, I knew, that's why I made you go last, cause, uh, these, I knew you would, uh, either, am I wouldn't be surprised if you read these or just. I have not or, read or, any or, of or them figure, for the record. Yeah.
2: I just, that's, when I, when I make you that do means- the science fiction for me, it's cause I don't have enough time to do it myself, so I'm not reading a lot of science news items. Does that Rebecca, yeah, um,
4: Jay and I are wrong? I guess we'll find uh, out. Not necessarily. So, uh, <laughs> scientists studied the genetic blueprints of uh, 15 hunter-gatherers from Africa, and they found DNA evidence of a sister species of sorts that branched off of the hominid tree around the same time that Neanderthals did, about about 1.1 1. 1 million years ago. Now, that the line, uh, this line that was created, that, that was evolving, was isolated from the line that produced us for quite a while. But then, through interbreeding, they got some of their DNA mixed back into the Homo sapien. Genome, and this is, and this is what they found. They found, like Steve said, they found these, uh, these, this, these anomalous bits of DNA that they believe came from an, another, you know, branch of the, of the hominid tree. Now, uh, I recently read though that there, there are detractors, of course, and they actually come up with a, a viable ar- counter argument. They claim that it's possible that the DNA came from a genetically distinct group of modern humans that have since died out, and that seems um, fairly plausible to me, but regardless, these, these, uh, these main group of scientists, though, believe that they have, have found, uh, evidence in, in, you know, extant DNA, uh, of, uh, you know, of another species of, 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 hominid that, that existed, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago that, uh, they still survive in a way in, in our DNA. And if it turns out to be true, that'd be really cool. And so it's, it's especially interesting that they, they found this not, you know, digging up bones, but actually just, just in the DNA of, of modern humans. That is really cool. Yeah. Uh, so see, let's see. Number two, study finds that brain imaging can predict how intelligent you are. Uh, Rebecca, Evan, and Jay think this is fiction and this is science. Oh, yeah. nice job, so this, Steve. Yeah, we'll, good job. We'll see about that. Um, crap. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I right. I'll send you, I'll send you the link. Uh, I mean, essentially that's, that's, that's what they're claiming. This case, this was published in the Journal of Neuroscience. And, um, I'm getting some of these quotes from the medical, medical press website. Uh, they said that, uh, new research from Washington University in St. Louis suggests that 10% of individual differences in intelligence can be explained by the strength of neural pathways connecting the left prefrontal cortex to the rest of the brain.
5: Oh boy. Um, God, imagine you go on a job interview and they want to scan your brain. That's going <laughs> to be really bad. Right.
4: The big advance here is that they, that, these findings establish the idea, this idea of global brain connectivity, as a new approach for understanding human intelligence. the they, uh, The article I read didn't go into much detail on exactly, uh, you know, how they assess human intelligence and what, you know, what what, what kind of tests or whatever, how they characterized it. Um, let's see. Uh, you know what they call that, thing. Bob? What?
2: Like a map of how the brain connects to itself?
4: No. What? The connectome. Oh, awesome. That's great. I never I never heard that one. I was Welcome trying to think of to an homework, word, but I was like, yeah. awesome. Um, lead author, Michael uh, Cole, PhD at uh, Washington University, um, he's a postdoctoral research fellow. He said, which is pretty much just a reiteration of what I've said, our research shows that connectivity with a particular part of the prefrontal cortex can predict how intelligent someone is. And uh, apparently, this is the first study to provide compelling evidence that neural connections between uh, the left... Uh, the, the left prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain make a unique and powerful contribution to the cognitive processing underlying human intelligence. So there it is.
5: So that's it then. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> I, <laughs> that's but that. I
2: mean, all such studies are fraught with the limitation of using IQ as a measure of quote unquote mm. intelligence. I mean, it is measuring something. It's just kind of misleading to call it intelligence because, you know, th- that, yeah. that can refer to so many different things.
4: Yeah, Bob. And I mean, it does, I mean, th- it does sound plausible that the strength of the neural pathways uh, connecting these two, you know, the prefrontal cortex with the rest of the brain kind of, it kind of makes sense on the surface that yeah. that would have a huge impact on intelligence. But, uh, and it was 10%. It's not like, it's not like they're going to say, uh, based on this brain image scan, your IQ must be 141.3. No, it's, I mean, it's just a 10% difference, but it is, it does let you predict, make some sort of pr- prediction that's mm-hmm. better than just rolling the dice, I guess um which means that number 3 theory shows <laughs> that ultra high energy cosmic rays are likely caused by the collision of three or more supermassive black holes is fiction i pulled that completely out of my butt i could not find <laughs> any i couldn't find any um and any steve news I- item <laughs> Oh. Yeah. I, I couldn't find any <laughs> oh yeah um typically i'll find a, a real news item and steve does this as well where you you find something that that's real and then you you just pi- just throw in the word not or just <laughs> It could just kind of reverse it, make it the opposite of what it is, and I couldn't find anything that. And I said, "All right, I'll just make something out of out of whole cloth." And I was like, uh, "Oh, ultra high energy cosmic rays. They are they are a big mystery. We have encountered these ultra high energy rays in the past, and uh, we have no idea what's what produced them. We have some theories. Some of those theories involve black holes, but not colliding black holes. Uh, black holes in the terms of uh, active galactic nuclei." Uh, uh, you know, galaxies that have very active cores. Uh, there also is, is talk of interaction potentially with dark matter, but, uh, but nothing that had to do really with, uh, no, you know, no one's really theorizing that, you know, the collisions of black holes, uh, could possibly do this. And I thought it sounded somewhat plausible and I did kind of scratch my head about, well, should I throw in three or should I just say, you know, just multiple, you know, just more than one, just two, Two supermassive black holes colliding, and I guess I made the wrong decision because the three I think was a bit of a red flag. I just wanted—I was kind of playing into the idea of that it's very rare, and it would indeed be very rare to have three supermassive black holes collide. It seemed plausible. I, I probably would have bought that if Steve—Steve uh, Steve had said that, if he did the science of fiction. But uh, yeah, it's tough, right? But, I mean, uh, it's
2: tough to make. You want to be fair, and you want to have a reason to think that something could be the fiction, but you don't want to make it too obvious, and that's a very fine line to walk. Yeah, but uh congratulations, Steve. Great job. Thank you. You guys could suck it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, <laughs> su- suck Bob's black hole. Nice. Got it. Oh, God.
1: Wow, boy. that was a very polite. That's pretty
5: epic, Steve. Polite put down. <laughs> That's the way you want to play it. Yeah, yeah. sure.
1: All right. Well, right.
5: uh, Jay, give us a quote. This is a quote by Alan Moore. Anybody remember who Alan Moore is? Remember him? Dudley's Met brother. Him. That's right, Rebecca. You did meet this guy.
1: Yeah. We've had long conversations about snake puppet gods. I
5: said remember because I've quoted this guy before. He's actually a pretty interesting fellow. He's an English writer, and he's primarily known for his work in comic books. The quote is, which was sent in by listener John O from Germany, (laughs) Yes, there is a conspiracy indeed. There are a great number of conspiracies, all tripping each other up. The main thing that I learned about conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theorists actually believe in the conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world is that it is chaotic. The truth is that it is not Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray aliens or the 12-foot reptiloids from another dimension that are in control. The truth is far more frightening. No one is in control. The world is rudderless. Alan Moore! That
2: is spot on. That's sort of the answer to all the big, grand conspiracy theories. Nobody has that level of control over of, of, right. what's happening. Crap just happens.
5: Yep.
1: There was a slight hiccup last week when the show went live. The tickets for the private recording uh, to CSU at DragonCon were not on the site, but they are now. Um, as of this recording, at least, there are still some tickets left. So if you go to skepticalrobot.com you should be able to order your tickets there. They're $50 each, and they are going quickly.
2: And we have just started a Kickstarter campaign. Our first one, this is to support... A new web series that we are planning called Octa Skeptical Caveman. The first episode is up on YouTube, but you can also see it along with our uh, Kickstarter introduction. The link is kind of a long one, so you, you could search for the SGU or Octa Skeptical Caveman on Kickstarter, and we will have the link in the show notes. We really need your support for this one. You know, producing videos takes a lot of time and effort, but also a lot of resources. And the more we get, the more we'll be able to do. The more videos we'll be able to produce for you with uh, higher production value. So please uh, consider giving. Us some support, and I know we talked about our our various trips uh, during the TAM show, but I wanted to make sure that uh, we thanked Charlie from Google for hosting us there. Thanks, and, Charlie. Yep, he was, he was super awesome, and basically was our chauffeur for two days while we uh, toured to Google and Pixar. And also thank Chris Craig and Donald from Pixar and Sheldon from the Bay Area Skeptics for hosting us and making us feel so, feel so welcome when we were over uh, on the West Coast. We actually interviewed Chris um, from Pixar at TAM, and that interview will be uh, aired in the, uh, in the coming weeks. fascinating discussion of the technology that goes into producing those little pixels.
5: Yeah, I can't say much about how much fun we had with those guys at Pixar and with, with Charlie at, at Google. It was one hell of a side trip that we took, and I hope that we can maybe do it again next year. Yeah, Yeah, that was awesome.
2: All right, well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank, Thank you, Steve. Steve. You're Thank you, Dr. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
1: The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.